Well, hello and welcome to this live special edition of the Politically Speaking podcast today. We're glad to have you here, and halfway through our show, we'll open it up to questions from our audience. I'm Chris McDaniel, the host of this event, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio, and joining me on stage is... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. Joe Manis with the St. Louis Beacon. And uh, Marshall Griffin, the uh, State House reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. So, Jason, we'll probably start it off with you, uh, since you started off first with your name. Um, <laughs> woo! Yes, initiative. That's the way it works. Jason, yes. what, what was your big takeaway from the 2013 legislative session? What was, what was noticeably there and what was noticeably absent? Well, I think one of the biggest pieces of legislation that ended up getting passed is one that probably won't set the world on fire with a lot of people, but that was legislation revamping the second injury fund and placing occupational disease into the workers' compensation system. And the reason why, for someone like me, I see that as significant is legislators have literally been trying to change the second injury fund for the past three, four, five years. Basically, right now, it's insolvent. And this program that's aimed at incentivizing already injured workers to um, get hired by employers was in desperate need of some changes. Um, legislation passed that not everybody is necessarily overjoyed with, but the fact that it made it to the governor's desk, I think, was a major accomplishment. Republicans, Democrats, maybe some independents, I don't know about the Communist Party, but I'm sure that they're happy about that as well. That was my terrible attempt at humor tonight. <laughs> um, but I, I, and I, I'm, the other things that Republicans would probably say are accomplishments, but not necessarily Democrats, are there was a broad-based tax cut that cut taxes on personal income, business, and uh, corporate income taxes that is, was hailed as a priority by the House and the Senate. And then there were a whole host of other bills, but rather than filibuster, I'll... I'll yield back the balance of my time. <laughs> Joe, what about you? What okay. was noticeably there and what was noticeably okay. absent? I will borrow something that I said uh, on uh, Don Marsh's show yesterday. I think the theme of the session, at least the last couple months, was guns, guns, and more guns. And I don't mean that badly, This is, but the point is, is that the legislature, especially the House, was so uh, fixated on their, ups, their concern and irritation and anger with um, how the Nixon administration has been handling driver's licenses and concealed carry permits, that that sort of then bled over into everything else. Um, it bled over into the budget fight, where they cut by one-third the budget for the uh, division of motor vehicles, which may affect you when you go to get your driver's license renewed, because the governor says that he is... The aim of the legislature was to force him to make changes and come back when they come back in January, and then if they're okay with what he did, they'll give him the rest of the money. And the governor said, no, forget that. He said that the way the state does the budget, it's an annual budget. It's not this continuing resolution business that they do in Washington. And he said, you know, this is what they made as the budget, and I'm just going to have to cut the division of motor vehicles by a third. Now, the reason they did that was because um, the Division of Motor Vehicles has changed how they do driver's licenses last fall, and what they've been doing is scanning documents and actually storing them. This is the personal documents that you have to show to get your driver's license, which has been the requirement 
since 2005, actually. So you have to usually show a birth certificate, uh, also something that proves where you live. Some people bring their passport. Well, a gentleman had brought in his concealed carry permit because you can also have a concealed carry endorsement put on your driver's license. Well, they scanned it. He wasn't too keen on that because there isn't a public record uh, of the concealed carry permits that, let's say, reporters can just look at. And that's a separate issue. But the point was he ended up suing uh, because they had scanned his uh, concealed carry permit for his uh, driver's license. So the, the upshot of it was they had this fight over the budget. This affected everything else, almost everything that was done, uh, even the tax cuts. Um, there was a lot of uh, focus on different issues, but it all came from the tension between the administration and the Republicans controlling the legislature who were really upset over what was done as far as the concealed carry permits. They passed four different pieces of gun legislation that are now sitting on the governor's desk. One would exempt Missouri from all federal gun laws. Another one would allow state employees to have guns in their cars in the state parking lots as long as they're not visible and stuff like that. So the point is, is that I've covered the legislature for a long time, but this was the one time when uh, one issue seemed to really drive a lot of the other debates. Joe, is there anything absent that you were thinking was going to be part of the 2013 legislative session? Well, I was surprised, but again, but actually it turns out not surprised. The state Senate, which is dominated by Republicans, there was a split within the Republican ranks. And that split prompted them to kill the proposed transportation sales tax that I thought would be approved uh, because business leaders around the state, especially the St. Louis area, want this uh, sales proposed sales tax, which would be one cent increase in the state sales tax for 10 years, and that would finance the uh, widening of Interstate 70 plus a lot of local highway and bridge projects. And uh, But there were some... Senate Republicans who objected to this proposal. The idea was we'd put on the ballot and you, and you would say yes or no. Uh, they didn't like the idea of even asking voters about increasing their sales tax because they thought it's become too easy to raise sales taxes in the state, so they filibustered it. They filibustered it on Tuesday night, half the night, while the business leaders, including the RCGA, was just flooding the phone lines of some of the senators, especially John Lamping, who is a Republican from suburban St. Louis, he's from Ladue, and trying to get them to bring it up again. They did bring it up again, but Lamping and his allies threatened to filibuster again, so it died. Yeah. There was a lot of people who thought that the transportation sales tax would at least get on the 2014 ballot because there were so many business leaders behind it. So the idea that you had a small group of Republicans who were willing to stand up, I mean, fair or unfair, because so, many of these business leaders are their donors, uh, said, we don't agree with this, we're not going to do this. But the, there was fallout from that because Lamping had a bill about Common Core, different, some of these other le legislators who were blocking this had other bills, and those got killed at the end too. And it wasn't because of the issue, it was because from what lobbyists were telling me is that some of the senators were upset over them killing 
putting the transit tax on the ballot for at least people to ask. Yeah, it was this kind of a strange alliance right. of opposition for that bill. Not only were the three very conservative senators against it, John Lamping of Ledoux, Ed Emery of Lamar, and Rob Schaff of St. Joseph against it, but there were also some Democrats in the legislature and elsewhere who were opposed to it because a one-cent increase on sales tax is a pretty major tax increase, especially for people on fixed incomes and seniors like like many people who, you know, would be affected by that. And it did have some unusual proponents, mainly Republicans, who saw it as an economic opportunity and organized labor uh, and some de- in the Democratic Party as well. So there was kind of strange bedfellows for it, and I think there were strange bedfellows who were against it, and the against strange bedfellows won the day, at least for now. Yeah, but it it does say something about what the impact could be further on. There has been a push by some conservative Republicans to eliminate the state income tax and replace it with a higher sales tax. Mm -hmm. The fact that this lost uh, makes me wonder whether or not um, that other effort could be successful. I think that some of the same people who had proposed it were also the people blocking the sales tax proposal. So I think um, it could make it more difficult for some of the conservatives who want to replace the income with the sales tax to do that when they block getting it on the ballot for this highway thing. I think uh, there's going to be some, I think, within the Republican ranks, a lot of discussion about are they for an income tax? Are they not for an income tax? Are they for uh, increased sales tax? If not, uh, what do they have in exchange? And if they're for an increase in sales tax, if do, do they not want it to be designated for stuff? I think it raises a lot of complicated issues of the income tax versus sales tax that could affect other things in the future sessions. It makes me wonder how many uh, caucus meetings there are going to be between now and January of 2014, especially on the Senate side, because I, I don't... I don't think they're going to want to see this repeat itself next year. Um, there's, there might be at least a chance to bring some of the, um, the opposing sides together in that and maybe make another attempt next year to get it passed since it originally was targeted for 2014. So it, it's, it'll be a wait-and-see situation there, but I'm guessing there will have to be some horse trading that will go on to perhaps satisfy uh, some of the stronger opponents that, uh, you know, like Senator Lamping and Senator Schaaf and you know, to try to get them to, to sit down or at least let it go, even if they vote no. I mean, Marshall, you were there all four months. I mean, what do you think contributed to this? And how did you not go crazy? Um, <laughs> lots of coffee, actually. Um, I, I, can re- I, I can tell you that um, I spent a lot of uh, late nights at the Capitol, especially the last two weeks. Um, it's, it's interesting to see how the, the, the Senate did and did not work together this year. Uh, a lot of the so-called obstructionists were gone from last year, um, especially when it comes to the tax credit battle. They've, they've been trying to get some type of tax credit reform through the General Assembly for, the, for I guess, the past four or five years or so now. Um, it, there was virtually no attempt last year because of what happened in 2011. If you don't remember that, there was a very large, wide-ranging tax credit bill that would have... Um, provided incentives, uh, the so-called Aerotropolis bill that would have provided incentives to get more uh, cargo businesses at Lambert Airport, um, and also what to do with uh, how large the uh, caps should be on historic preservation tax credits and on low-income housing tax credits, which are utilized here in the St. Louis area, um, probably more so than anywhere else in the state. So you had 
you have uh, two philosophies in the house. There's the philosophy of tax credits are good. It creates jobs. Uh, you know, leave the, leave the caps alone, or at least, you know, if you're going to shrink the caps, don't shrink them by too much. And that, that attitude was still pervasive this year. As you see, the, the low-income housing uh, tax cap was uh, proposed to be only just lowered by, I believe, only $5 million less than what it currently is. Um, and in the Senate, you had this group of staunch fiscal conservatives led by Jason Crowell and a few others who are no longer in the Senate who wanted to wipe out all tax credits or at least bring them under legislative control to where the, where the legislature decides how much money goes into a tax credit program. Every year. Every yeah. year, yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's, because of that roadblock between House and Senate Republicans, you know, it's you know, both of the same party but different wings of the Capitol, and that was enough, <laughs> enough of a, a divide to keep that from going forward for years. So with um, a new set of, uh, of people in the chamber and with uh, the so-called obstructionists gone, what happens this year, it still doesn't pass. You know, the, the, the language and the, uh, the meetings were probably maybe a little bit more publicly cordial. There was less bomb throwing going back and forth, but the results are still the same. No, no wide-ranging tax credit package or reforms, with the only exceptions being... Um, probably to lawmakers' credits, the, uh, the benevolent tax credits, and also the, uh, the I believe it was the uh, amateur sports, sporting events tax credits. And, and for the pregnancy centers. And the pregnancy centers, yes. Well, for my big takeaways, I knew I shouldn't have let Jason go first because <laughs> I, I really thought I was being clever by going with a less covered issue like the second injury fund. Well, I can read your mind, Chris. <laughs> That's worrisome. That I can read worrisome. all of your minds, too. <laughs> But I'll elaborate a little bit on the second injury fund. It's been a problem for a long time now. Uh, Statewide Democrats have been pointing to it for some time. And then there was an audit back in, I believe it was December, from Republican State Auditor Tom Schweik that said it was about $25 million uh, in worth of trouble. So getting this taken care of was was a pretty big deal. They've known about it for several years because this goes back to 2005, when uh, the Republicans reduced the fee that the businesses pay into it, because right. at that point, some of the businesses thought it was too high of a fee. Well, you had Nixon, who was the Attorney General at the time, who was claiming that it would lead to this, and then it did. Right. Um, but, and there was some little sniping back and forth between Speaker Jones and Nixon over who was responsible for the financial issues. But yes. <laughs> I think it's a small miracle, perhaps, that, act, that something actually got out this year that everyone at least can agree on and at least that the governor says, you know, thank you for getting this through. And it looks like there will be finally some type of patch, uh, whether it's a good patch or a bad one remains to be seen, but uh, at least there's something that's going to be done as far as putting more money into the second injury fund. And it was at least recognized. Yeah. As, as Senator Scott Roop, the, uh, the, the sponsor of the bill, put it, you know, there's something in this bill that uh, not everyone likes. You know, all, the, all of the players don't like something about this bill, but at least it's enough to, to start from. And, to, and as I said in a piece I did a, about a week or so ago, the, the significance of how important this was to the Senate was is they numbered this Senate Bill Number 1, and that was not by accident. Yeah, and for, you, and for average people, this may like, what's the second injury fund? How does this affect me? Here's how it affects you is that um, one of the reasons they finally did it was because because it's been short of money. Uh, there's hundreds of claimants and potentially thousands, well, thousands of claimants 
who have not been getting their benefits, even though they were awarded benefits by administrative judge. So they've gone to court. So the state was looking at millions and millions and millions above what the liability was for, okay, they owed about 25, 26 million in benefits that haven't been paid out. Well, they have to pay interest of 9% a year on the unpaid benefits. So think about that, that's been going up. And then also some of these uh, people who were the claimants who had been awarded benefits have hired lawyers and gone to court and they could potentially be awarded much more. So finally, it was getting through to legislators that to fight over whose fault it was, wasn't going to resolve the fact that the bill for the state was potentially going to be huge once these lawsuits really started being uh, decided. Most of them were still in the court system, but potentially judges could be awarding millions for each claimant. And whereas under the second injury fund, their benefits were, it varies, but it's about 40 or 50,000 each. So think about that. So the bottom line, that could potentially affect all these other programs that you rely on or how much you pay in taxes or the state's bond rating and many of these other things if it turned out that the state all of a sudden faced potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in liabilities because they had not been paying the, the benefits as people were being awarded them. It was going to be extremely more expensive. Well, now that the session's over, that means that we can <laughs> speculate hopelessly about whether or not Nixon will veto uh, any of these bills and talk a little bit about their chances for being overridden if there is a veto. Jason, you were and I and actually Ashley from the audience were, were at a Nixon event on Monday, and we were asking him about the income tax cuts. And he condemned them pretty strongly, but he stopped short of committing a veto because he said he was still looking at it. Here's, here's his quote. Certainty in, he was at a, an event for... RGA. Yeah, it was yeah. a RGA, giant reinsurance bringing company. Bringing 300 jobs. Right, right. Basically, he was, yeah. He was shoveling dirt, the ceremonial <laughs> one big plot of dirt. Uh, here's his quote. Certainty and predictability is an important part of our economic strategy. We'll give, the hard bill, we'll give the bill a hard look, but I'm one to believe that we're a low tax state, 45th or so, and being predictable in that area and not veering off that course is pretty important. Jason, well, what do you think about his I chances? I think there's a, there's a 100% chance that he vetoes that 100? Not even a 99.9? I'm, I'm going out on a limb, and I'm jumping off of it. And then the wow. Big, <laughs> the big question, I think, is whether it's going to be overridden. Because if you look at the numbers in the Senate, there are, are enough votes to override it in the Senate. In the House, it was 103. And, and, I, and forgive me, I don't remember the no votes, but 103 is not enough to override a veto. They need 109. They need 109. The thing magic was, number. <laughs> yes, that's the magical number that you need in the House. The thing was, though, that there were at least seven Republicans that didn't vote. One of them is Jason Smith, a Republican from Salem who most likely will be elected to Congress, barring a change of events in, in June. <laughs> Not not to disappoint two weeks. not to disappoint Democrats in the in the boot heel, but their chances of winning that race are not particularly high. So mm-hmm. that would mean that they six of those people that didn't vote would have to come back. And I think, you know, I I, I failed math class, but six plus <laughs> one hundred and three is one hundred and nine. So there is a possibility there. Um, other bills that I think probably won't get overridden after veto is this so-called paycheck protection paycheck 
deception, no. whatever silly no. moniker you want to attach to it. And that's almost guaranteed. There, to there be were about as well. 20 Republicans that sided with the Democrats and voted no and, on that one. And just to explain it, what that is. Right. Um, ba- yeah, basically, well, most of you probably know, but basically what it is is the, the law that, I mean, the bill that was passed and that is on the governor's desk uh, calls for public employees who are in unions that they have to give their permission annually before uh, the union can have their dues automatically deducted from their paycheck. In writing. In writing. And they also have to give permission for any of the money to be used for political purposes. Now, the public employee units unions say the last part already is the way it is, that they can't just willy-nilly spend money on political stuff. But the first part... Uh, the labor was contending this would slow things down. You may have some people who wouldn't give their permission, even though they're represented by the union. So the I and they contended that the backers' aim was just to uh, weaken the union's political power by re- reducing the size of their pocketbook. Yeah. Uh, the the supporters were saying no. It's to uh, give people a right to decide whether or not they want to be giving money to the union. Now, in the House, the support was, I think, 86. It was either 86 or 89 votes. The point is it's like between 20 and 23 uh, votes short of an override. So it's almost guaranteed that the governor is going to do it because the chances of the supporters finding those 20-something votes to override are slim. Yeah, I would say that that bill will get vetoed, and there's almost no chance of it getting overridden. Um, One bill that I've been paying attention to, and I'm not just saying this because Mike Jones of the county executive (laughs) office walked in through the door, is a bill that would effectively abolish foreclosure mediation ordinances both in St. Louis County and St. Louis City. Now, both of those measures passed by pretty substantial margins in both the House and the Senate, but several Democratic senators told me that they decided not to filibuster it because they got signals from the governor that they, he was going to veto it. For, for people that don't know, the ordinances allow a homeowner going through foreclosure to go into mediation, the hope being that they either find an, a solution to keep their homes. Uh, it won't, I guess, I guess it won't cause a solution every time, but it's meant to be a response to the foreclosure crisis in both St. Louis City and St. Louis County. Um, the, the, but but uh, Jeff Rainford told Joe that it's possible the government uh, Mayor Slay's chief of staff chief chief of staff that yeah. it may not get vetoed just because of the margins. Um, if it does get vetoed and they do decide to go through an override, the, the numbers are there for an override. But the question is whether they would bring it up, considering it's kind of an issue that only affects a region now. Um, a specific region now, and it could potentially be seen as a sop to the realtors and the banks who are heavily opposed to foreclosure mediation ordinances and we're pushing this bill. Well, that, well, that's an that's a obsession of mine, I'll admit it, because I think it's a really important and interesting policy issue, but you know, the, we'll have to see what the governor does on that Well, issue. according to Rainford, though, he was contending, he and Slay were in Jeff City on Wednesday to lobby for that and some other they, stuff. They, they've been in Jeff City a fair amount. Yeah, uh, to... Uh, Rainford was contending that actually the local banks are not opposed to it. He claimed it was the Banking Association. Of course, the Banking Association is also a major lobbying group, and they do donate to legislators. Now, I mean, you have this with lots of uh, 
organizations, uh, conservative and liberal, where they, especially now that Missouri doesn't have any campaign donation limits and hasn't since 2008, um, you see that many of these groups that can afford to have strong lobbyists, uh, many of whom uh, also provide big checks to the legislators, that those groups that have big muscle in lobbying tend to Ha often have a stronger voice in what passes or doesn't pass or what gets overridden or doesn't get overridden in Jefferson City. And this is true on both sides. Uh, so, but, so the banking association is against the mediation bill, but some of the local banks, at least according to Rainford, were not. But it was interesting that he and uh, Mayor Slay, who were in Jefferson City to lobby for other things, like hoping to resurrect the tax credits, uh, the mayor was also lobbying for major brands in this internal liquor franchise thing, which probably goes over your head, but just tell you that there was a lot of head. money circulating on that one. And, um, a lot of money brewing. Right. Uh, and ma major brands <laughs> yeah, has that, about that deserved yeah, several hundred Jason's employees Jason's used that joke five times. It's yeah. always gotten the same reception. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's going to be close nothing. as far as the mediation thing. And my point being, without meandering more than I just did, <laughs> is that often things that have nothing to do with a bill influence whether a bill gets passed, whether it gets signed, but especially whether or not he gets overridden. That's my bottom line. Marshall wants to give his take yes. on, on veto as yeah. well. Um, well, I, I do concur as far as um, the governor vetoing paycheck protection and probably the tax bill. Um, and, and also probably signing, of course, the, uh, the second injury fund bill. Yeah. Um, I also think he's going to line item the, um, possibly line item out the new MoDOT office building. Uh, since he said this was something he didn't ask for. Um, we, we need to explain that. Yeah, yeah there was a, um, it's a, a supplement. It's not really an official budget bill. It's, it's kind of classified as a budget bill, I do believe. Um, yeah, 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 and yes. And, and what it is is that the, the legislators want to buy a, bill, a building next to the Capitol and move MoDOT out of it. It's now rented space. It's, it's a private-owned building. Buy the building and move state employees into it. Yeah, uh, the uh, the new building would be over by the old state prison, which is a, a an area that's been targeted for redevelopment in Jefferson City uh, to draw just more business and also more tourists to the area, as they uh, continue to revamp and re and get the uh, old museum or the old prison ready uh, for more tourists. But anyway, as to, to that that goes to <laughs> that also just goes into the whole argument of. Um, how much money are we spending and where, why aren't we spending it on other things? Um, you know, the governor basically said, this is a building that I didn't ask for. I think he used the point of, you know, there's, you know, lawmakers want to spend $38 million on a new office building, but they don't, don't want to spend the money necessary to bring more people aboard um, for uh, Medicaid coverage. That was, a, that of course was uh, the governor's big theme the whole session long that Republicans just, you know, did not move on at all. Now, in fairness to Speaker Jones, uh, Tim Jones, the day that they announced they were going to do this amendment to the budget, first there had been an announcement from the state budget director that looks like we're going to end up this fiscal year with up to $500 million in excess money, so, they'll, so that they're, they're ending it with a surplus. And in, in his announcement, because Jones came up to the press gallery 
and they had cut a deal with the governor. The, the, the governor had put out a proposal saying, I want to spend $45 million to approve, improve the state parks. I want to spend, uh, it was close to $20 million to, for Fulton. For Fulton State for, Hospital. Yes, yeah, State <laughs> Hospital to improve that. That's, and uh, a couple other things. The, I think roughly $50 million for the actual state capitol building itself. Correct, and, correct, because the state capitol building needs work. I mean, because it's leaking and some other things, and they don't want it to destroy the beauty of it. If you've ever been to the state capitol, let me tell you, the House Gallery is one of the most beautiful buildings, I mean, beautiful rooms anywhere, anywhere. It's gorgeous with those stained glass windows. Okay, that aside, so they cut it. So they had a meeting that morning, and Jones said that they brought up about the $38 million. They wanted to put that in. They cut the parks thing in half, so that's like $20 million for the state parks instead of 45. But Jones was telling us that a deal had been cut. The Senate agreed, the governor agreed, they all agreed. Okay, well then, a week or two later, the governor says, no, there's not a deal. Now, I believe, I asked Jones this, and he said he hated to think that it was retribution, but I believe this all goes back to guns, is that the governor got upset, is still upset over the cutting of the DMV, because all this happened about the same time, and I think he was hoping that if he agreed to this building, that they would put that money back in. This, they would have had to done it that day, because this was the last day to get the budget through. Didn't happen. Nobody even proposed it. But I really believe that if they had put the money in for the DMV, you wouldn't have the governor in almost every public statement inserting a reference to that $38 million building. So I think, I, I think there's a connection. 